Hello and welcome to the Cafe Bitcoin podcast, brought to you by Swan Bitcoin, the best way to buy and learn about Bitcoin. I'm your host, Alex Danton, and we're excited to announce that we're bringing the Cafe Bitcoin conversation from Twitter Spaces to you on this show, the Cafe Bitcoin podcast, Monday through Friday, every week. Join us as we speak to guests like Michael Saylor, Len Alden, Corey Clipston, Greg Foss, Tomer Strohlight, and many others in the Bitcoin space. Also, be sure to hit that subscribe button. Make sure you get notifications when we launch a new episode. You can join us live on Twitter Spaces Monday through Friday, starting at 7 a.m. Pacific and 10 a.m. Eastern every morning to become part of the conversation yourself. Thanks again. We look forward to bringing you the best Bitcoin content daily here on the Cafe Bitcoin Podcast. All right, all right. Good morning to all of you Cafe Bitcoiners. Good morning, Don Bay. Morning, Peter. Good morning, Terrence. Welcome back, Homer Strolite. How are you? Morning to Jacob. Hey, good morning. Took me a second to get the mic off. Slow reflexes. Got to exercise and back up. Uh, what did I miss? I, I really tried to tune out for like a solid 12 days. Um, came absolutely back. nothing tomer yeah. <laughs> i was gonna say the price the price didn't change and uh i guess no etfs were, were approved and no charges were laid against anybody and so it's just it's i picked a good two two week window to take a vacation i suppose yeah it's been much sideways crabbing and uh you know everything that goes along with sideways crabbing so okay. i've been actually trying to tune out too um like when I'm not doing the show, I try not to look at Twitter at all. So like my Twitter time is basically doing Cafe Bitcoin now. Well, and like prior to prior to Cafe Bitcoin, we also do show prep, which kind of gets me caught up, I hope, a little bit. Yeah, I wish there was an easier way to curate Twitter from all the truly psychotic stuff that's on it. Because um, I, when I was away, I, I noticed myself relaxing, and then you come back to Twitter, and it's, every, every tweet seems to be some uh, <laughs> deeply concerning in, insinuation about something or other. So it just it, it's really it's really tough to take the constant barrage of of the Twitter zeitgeist, which is it, it may be accurate in many regards, but it's also very impactful on your mental health. Yeah, your mental, spiritual health, emotional health, all that stuff. I wonder, um, like, how much of it is actually encouraged, exacerbated, incentivized by the algorithms and social media? Like, if you go and you watch certain interviews with, like, PhD behavioral scientists who have done interviews with, like, one the one I'm thinking of was... I think it was the chief engineer of Facebook who designed the algorithm. And they literally said that we tune this thing to show people things that are going to make them upset. And the reason why is this, this, this has the highest level of stickiness, meaning like it gets the eyeballs looking at it. It gets people staying on, it, it holds people's attention and we're living in the attention economy. Whoever is able to keep people's attention longest wins, so to speak. And it's yeah. essentially like constantly feeding people really dysfunctional stuff. It's like 
Jerry Springer 24/7. Yeah, there's a couple of uh there's a couple of really good TED talks about this and it's interesting now now that AI is in is in the zeitgeist everybody is focusing on AI but AI algorithms not ones that were writing perfect perfectly grammatically correct English text for you or drawing images, but selecting what content to put in front of you have been around for a long time. And this is like the YouTube algorithm, the Facebook algorithm, and and the Twitter algorithm. And what's interesting about these TED Talks that that discuss this issue is they point out how you simply optimize for engagement, right? You tell the AI algorithm Put it, put, learn what maximizes engagement and put that in front of people to continue to maximize engagement. The AI has no actual understanding of what content is in there. But what emerges is it is exactly as you said, content that is radicalizing, uh, emotionally aggravating, terrifying. You know, like if you're, if you're in terror, you keep coming back to the thing to see, is my terror justified? Has the next domino fallen in this? disaster scenario that I'm coming. If everything's hunky-dory, you don't have to go back and check. But if you're constantly in a state of fear, you are. And that's what ends up being game theoretically or algorithmically what these things put in front of people. So there's one, there's one really good scientist who says, you know, if you, if you start to look at um, vegetarian dishes, it will turn you into a radical vegan by, uh, by doing these things. Or if you start to look at at meat dishes it'll turn you into a radical carnivore but it'll it'll just continue to radicalize the content by finding something that's more extreme until it gets to the most extreme thing that it can to keep you on there and i and i think that and and again the, the ai algorithm isn't conscious it doesn't know what's going on it just knows what works and what works happens to be the stuff that is filling and filling and fueling you with terror and i don't think that there's a solution for that uh, right now, the the best solution is some solution that where your attention isn't the business model of the of the entity you're interacting with because you're dealing with something that has artificialness and no sense of morality and no sense of understanding even what it means to suffer as a human being to be a human being. So it just does. It, it just does its thing. It's just a machine that does its thing. And the second that you engage with it, you're you're participating in something that doesn't understand anything about you other than it understands its world, that it's trying to maximize its engagement uh, with these entities on the other end of it. Yeah, and, and I think we need to ask the question, like, what are the second and third order effects on human culture from this? Like, if you think about it, people are constantly staring at their phones. Like, they're just sucked into them and they're being essentially programmed all day every day the question is with what and you know you're starting to see this shift in the in the culture like i i call i you know i've talked about this kind of stuff a lot probably to the point where many people are tired of me talking about it maybe but like cluster b personality disorder type stuff is uh it's becoming super common the behaviors are starting to become super common like you at least that's what you see all the time on social media like how many people are actually out there that are like this i don't know what the percentage of the population is but it seems like that's all you see on social media anymore is these cluster b disordered behaviors and it's it's really mind blowing and i wonder 
And you take a normal person and expose them to those behaviors because that's what's getting the engagement. That's what they're being fed. That's what they're being programmed with. You take a normal uh, person, expose them to those behaviors continuously over and over and over again. Will it turn somebody into somebody who behaves like that? I don't know, man. It's a pretty freaky thing to me. And it's, it concerns me a lot because you're starting to see the rise of this. Can, you're can starting you just to provide a quick definition of what cluster B personality disorder is? Yeah, hang on a minute. I guess I'm re-co-hosting. Can you hear me okay? Yeah, loud and clear. All right. So if you... Okay, there's this book. I think it's called the DSM-5. I believe that's what it's up to right now. It's basically the the Bible for clinical psychologists and counselors and behavioral, uh, human behavioral psychology kind of scientists. It basically explains what we have, this category of, of personality disorder. They call it personality disorders that, that, that this, the profession, quote, the profession, I don't know if it's really a profession or a science or not. And I, to me, I have questions about that, but um, it, it classifies these types of behaviors and personality disorders. And there's a spectrum and there's like, uh, there's a handful of them. It's like, there's like histrionics, there's, borderlines, there's uh, anti-socials, what I call sociopaths, basically. There's narcissists. They all fit into this. And then the behaviors are all pretty common amongst these people that are, uh, you know, it, it. here's the dangerous part is when, you, when someone can actually go and classify someone clinically as having these kind of, um, like, you're this kind of a person, I, I personally think that's very dangerous. Like we shouldn't, I, I think there's a very slippery slope that human beings can go down when they start saying, okay, well, this person has the authority and the certification to classify this other person as a, a certain type of a human being. Like for me, actions speak louder than words. Like someone can say something, but I watch what they do or what they say consistently over time. And we all have times where we are, maybe upset or maybe things aren't going so well in our life or maybe we're angry or maybe we're feeling anxiety or fear in that moment. And maybe we will say and do things that we might not normally do. But I'm talking about watch their behavior over time. Is this person consistent? Like, you know, over six months or a year or two years or five years, do they continuously behave that way? That to me is a pretty strong indicator of of like, you know, what's what a person's all about. So, in this, when I talk about this stuff, there are in the DSM-5, again, you can go look this up. I'm not making it up. Go read it yourself. There are a handful of types of behaviors that are becoming, that, that are exhibited by these types of personality disorders that are becoming super freaking common. Gaslighting, um, manipulation tactics, uh, word salad, like they intentionally try to enrage and upset you because they're trying to get you off balance. And by doing that, um, they have, it's easier for them to control what you're thinking about. Like their whole, these types of folks, generally speaking, 
they just want attention. They want your attention. They want everybody's attention. They want to feel important. They want to feel like they matter. And look, everybody does, but these people have like a, and these are my own words. I'm not a clinical psychologist. I'm just telling you what I, my interpretation of what I've read. Basically, they're, they're, they're black holes of, of they, they don't, they don't have empathy and they, they just, they feed off of the emotional states of others. Meaning they will do something to trigger you into an emotional state and that's how they have feelings because they don't have empathy. That's the common trait amongst them. Now, now some of them have empathy occasionally, but it's not consistent. Like a borderline, for example, will occasionally have empathy. Histrionics will occasionally have empathy. But some of these folks have no empathy. When you go on the far, far end of the no empathy spectrum, that's where you get to psychopathy. That's where you get to the psychopaths like Dahmer and, and people like that. Um. Anyway, I don't know if that's what you were looking for, but no, that, there it that's is. Abso- that's absolutely useful. I, I mean, I have my own. Th- I'm not an expert. I don't know that the experts are legitimate. Um, yeah, I think it's dangerous I, in this thing, in this particular subject, to even call the experts experts, right? Because it's like that. I don't want to hand anybody that kind of power. I agree. I mean, I, I have, I have my lifetime of experience of people who of, of my interactions with people who have exhibited these types of behaviors that you say. And I I think uh, for me, at least I've seen, well, there's two kinds of circumstances. There's, there's people are not at their best when they're under tremendous amounts of pressure or, or, or in a situation where they feel fear. And so people who are otherwise intelligent and rational and decent in situations where they're deeply intimidated and fearful, like they're afraid for their job. Or super angry. Like really, really yeah, so, angry or triggered in some, they'll start speaking in word salad, just as an example, right? And 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 they will go along with the crowd, even when they know that the, what the crowd is saying is wrong. They'll go along with the authority, even though they know that what the authority is saying is wrong. I've seen I've seen experiments of this, and I've seen it firsthand in in my own life. So they're, they're, it's just a situation that um, it's a. It's kind of a generic thing. Whether or not there's more of this um, of this behavior as a result of giving the people who are who possess this personality disorder more of a stage, or they're more successful now, or maybe more of us are under pressure and exhibiting this behavior more frequently, it's hard to it's hard to sort all that out. But I do think we're exposed to it more if we connect to social media than we otherwise would be. It's just, it's a platform that's filled with noise and deception and panic and fear. And, you know, I I don't want to say that everyone is pushing fears that they know are false. I think many people are sharing fears that they fear are true. Um, And that, and that is what, what creates this tremendous ambiguity and this loss of cohesion around what what is our politics what is our philosophy what is our culture what is our society all about and where and where is it headed and it's it's particularly tough in tough times right so when people are under pressure when the economy is harsh when there's things that the people who are supposed to be in charge of behaving differently than the people in charge of it say it should it ought to behave it creates massive uncertainty and weakens all of our ability to, pr- to be at our best. Um, and, and I think that's where you then start to see 
this counter reaction of well, people trying to find solutions that are not just solutions to the specific problems, but solutions to this general problem like mindfulness and and a resurgence of religion or philo philosophical study that people are trying to get their marbles back because they've lost so many of their marbles in the chaos of what has been seen over the last I mean, you, I want to say three years, and then I want to say, well, that's really five years, and then really 10 years, and then really 50 years, and then really 100 years. So Yeah, I, think yeah, it's been I mean, it's, it, yeah. it's been here with us as long as we've had humans, right? As long as humans have walked the earth, we've had these types of behaviors. Now, the question to me is, and it seems cyclical, this is just... I guess what what's the what do you call it when you when it's a it's not data driven it's just an observation it's anecdotal yes good good word but but it seems to me that like the the amount of this stuff is increasing and it t happens if you look at history it happens looks like in cycles like in the bible right and not that the bible is the arbiter of history but i mean that's just one example there's this cycle where like Every four generations, like they're, they go like, you know, off the fucking rails and everybody's doing immoral shit and then they're in slavery again and then they rise and it just keeps, it's a pattern that repeats over and over and over again. I don't know. Peter. I, I just wanted to say, Alex, that I hate it when you refer to uh, DMS-5. It's a fucking shit coin. DSM. Whatever the five. fuck it is, it's a shit coin. And there's so much in that that I disagree with that uh, I'm going to say that I would that's, never cherry pick what I agree with. That's that's fair. So and so you know, like I don't like read one book and be like, okay, this is the this is the you know, this is the word. It's not like that. Like I had a very close encounter with a very mentally unstable person i'll just leave it at that and it, it led me to some very dark places and some very dark experiences i end up studying it in depth I've, I've read a dozen books on the subject not just from not just the dsm5 so i'm forming my opinions based upon that not one book anyway that's, i don't know that's fair that, that that's fair i just like i said i that I don't know. There's a lot of there's a lot of the a lot of the woke kinds of uh, arguments are people people who you know argue for the woke stuff. They use the same they use that same manual to justify their opinions. Well, I I think then that's the dangerous part of it, right? So to me, again, this is why I think you know the 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 cloth and the robe of certifying and certifications and credentials is dangerous. Cause once you start saying this human has the, the authority to classify this other human, that, that, that has some very potentially dark ramifications. And I would be, I think it would not do human humanity any favors if we handed people that kind of power. I think we're, we've, the pendulum has swung way too far in that direction already. And it needs to swing back the other way, in my opinion. Anyway, let's switch gears. We're 21 minutes into the show. We haven't even introed the show. We're not even talking about Bitcoin. So for those of you who came to listen to, to this show about Bitcoin, we're going to do that, I promise. Um, 
Welcome to Cafe Bitcoin. This is episode 444. We will talk about Bitcoin for the rest of the show. Our mission is to provide a signal and see a noise, teach people about Bitcoin, why there's hope because of Bitcoin. We're going to be uh, doing open discussion today. Later in the second half of the show, we got Giga Energy coming on. Uh, Giga, by the way, they they do stranded gas to power energy intensive computing. Uh, that's another way of saying they mine Bitcoin. <laughs> they build and operate, I guess, custom power generation equipment. So we're going to find out more about that. Um, I wanted to ask, and and you've been working on this thing. What is this shadowy super codering thing you've been working on that you're all excited about in the back channel? Hey, good morning, Alex. Good morning, everybody. <laughs> Sorry, my voice is a little shot. I'm a little tired from doing all this. I was up really late last night pushing this thing, but you know what? <clears throat> it's going to be really awesome. So here's what happened. Kind of a little rabbit hole for me, but, you know, time chain stats, you know, I, I get some requests from time to time to add stuff. And one of the most popular requests over this last basically two or three years has been donations button, donations button. You know, people appreciate what I did and what I built with time chain stats and they want to send me some stats. And I really appreciate that, but I just never added it until recently. You know, when I did, I went and set up BTC pay server and I got it all set up, you know, got my lightning liquidity pumping and and basically set up a uh, donate button. You can go to time chain stats and then on the right, there's a little donate button. Well, BTC pay server is awesome. And for all of its awesomeness, I mean, it's so cool that you can literally like just click a few things. Once you get your BTC pay server set up, you like click a few things and then it gives you this code. It spits it out. It generates it. And then you can put that in your site. But unfortunately, it doesn't work in React websites, which a ton of websites are made with React. And without getting too techie for the non-coders, you know, non-web coders, it's just an environment and, a, you know, a way to build a website. And a lot of coders use it. Even, you know, some of the biggest websites are made with React. Time Chain Stats is made in React. And so, it, you know, it wasn't easy. It took a while for me to get, you know, that uh, system working. You know, you have to do it in a different way. And... When I was done with it, you know, uh, I had done a lot of searching online trying to find if someone had done this before. Me. That's typically the way you code. You, you know, you, you want to see if somebody had left the light on before you, before you go journeying, you know, into the wilderness, right, into the darkness. So no one had. In fact, there's a, uh, there's a, a post on Stack Overflow that's like three and a half years old. Where someone's like, hey, how do I get this, you know, BTC pay code into my React app? And there was no answers. And so anyway, that's what I did. I took the component that I built for time chain stats, which is basically a faithful recreation of BTC pay servers pay button. And I rolled it up into a package, NPM package, and then I released it. And it's open source. Anybody can go to the GitHub today, as of today, and, you know, clone it, play with it, install it, whatever. But this solves a big problem. It's like a, a last mile between 
you know, uh, a company's BTC pay server and their app, their React app. So it's pretty cool. I'm excited too because, you know, we talk about that there's a lot of work to be done in this space, and there is with Bitcoin with regards to Bitcoin. And, you know, people think like, oh, I'm not a coder, I can't do something, but, you know, there's tons of work to be done here. And in this case, this was something that I had to do. And since I had done the work, I said, you know, let me leave the light on for the next people. So that's what I did. It's released. It's live. And uh, I'm pretty excited about it. This happens in the application layer, which is another really interesting aspect of contributing to this space. I didn't contact BTC Pay and say, hey, I'm going to do this thing and I need your permission or whatever. There was a need and I added it and now anybody can use it. And that's the cool part. Like it's, you know, maybe they're going to adopt it. Who knows? Maybe I'll end up on the BTC Pay documentation with this project. Who knows? But, you know, you don't need permission. You just see a problem and you fix it with code or if you're not a coder, maybe fix it with, you know, your words or your marketing acumen or your, you know, whatever your skill sets are. If you see a problem that you can help with Bitcoin, then that that that's what motivated me here. So, uh, that, yeah, thanks for letting me speak about it. Yeah. So is that an open source solution? I guess you've got that out there somewhere in the public. People can grab it. Yeah, it's on GitHub. Uh, if you look on GitHub for, uh, 2140 data, I mean, that's me. So I've got my little repo on there or my little, uh, account. So you can find that and see my stuff. But, uh, the name of the prod of the repo is, uh, react BTC pay pay button. And this just a start, by the way, there's a ton of uh, functionality in BTC pay. And I'm going to start, I think, building components out of this, you know. Um, yeah, uh, keep keep adding more and more of these things, you know, so that more React developers can use BTC Pay Server. I mean, think about it. 12 million live React websites in the world as of 2023. It's a huge footprint. And I don't know how many of those websites are like e-commerce sites or sites that need a, you know, a BTC Pay solution. But you can see this is like the last mile. You know, you you go through all the trouble. You set up your BTC Pay server. It's not 100% easy. I mean, there are some easy ways to do it. But at the end of the day, you're still having to go through these setups. Then if you want to take lightning donations or tips or payments, you have to set up your channels. And that has its own issues, too. There's like a, a it takes a while. And after you've gone through all of this stuff and you're ready to get it on your website, now what? And the system spits out code and that's really cool. It's awesome that they did that, but they just don't have a React implementation. And this code that they give you doesn't work in React. So it's awesome. Pretty excited about it. So when you say last mile, this is the kind of stuff that is going to need to be built for really what we call mass adoption and hyper-Bitcoinization, there needs to be more and more of these types of things built so it's easy for people to implement, right? Well, yeah, I mean, let's, I mean, the, the more that we can remove the friction 
in this space to where things become more seamless and things are abstracted away, then, you know, the easier this stuff is going to become and the more products we're going to see built. I mean, look, this is just a, a project that me and a good friend worked on to, to, to get public. But if somebody really used it and took off and, you know, I mean, it, it could be, it could lead into big things. And that's the exciting part. When you're building things like this, you don't really know what can happen. So that's the cool part. Awesome. I'm really glad that we have people like Ant in the ecosystem. Ayer, good morning. Go ahead, man. Hello, good morning. Just, uh, I, I agree with everything that Ant is saying. Uh, in, in Ant's way, uh, he has a particular type of website which uses React. Uh, but uh, Ant, it's important to explain that BTC Pay Server also comes with some very, very uh, simple templates that you can work with and put it in your put it in your site uh, basically it's a, it's a website itself and it's, it has the integration already with the with the btc pay server when you set it up uh, and by default you can receive on-chain uh, bitcoin but uh, if you have a, a lightning node you can connect especially if it's a lnd lightning node base uh, lnd base you can connect it with the macaroon to your BTC Pay server and the, the page and the BTC Pay server itself will recognize the Lightning wallet and you, in the same page of BTC Pay server, it's not React, but it's just a normal HTML, CSS page template. You can get paid with Lightning and on-chain. Um, yeah, I just wanted to say that because last week, uh, I, I we have a meetup here in Tokyo with Nicola Dorier, and he's one of the main guys uh, that works with BTC Pay Server and maintain it. So we were talking about the options that they have, and now they have a Docker image that will, will be, it could be installed in BTC Pay Server. So you don't need to have an external Lightning node. So, uh, but yeah, it's not easy. It's not very simple for, for any, any non-engineer. That's, that's what I wanted to say. Yeah, I agree. I mean, it's an awesome so uh, system when you mess around with it and it only takes a few minutes uh, for you to, to, to actually see how awesome it is. It's very robust. But, you know, just like you said, I mean, those those templates and the snippets that they give you are, you know, that they work in uh, like websites that aren't React. But with React, you, you can't do like script tags and, and different things. There's diff there's like a React way that you have to do things. So it's exciting. All right. Anything else on this topic? Anybody? All right. Let's move on. I don't know if you guys saw this, but NBA champion and former LeBron James teammate is now working with Swan. So uh, Matthew Deladova joined the Swan team as a uh, vice president of business development. That's pretty cool. I just thought I'd throw that out there because I know there's a lot of Delhi fans. And no, right. he will not. He will not be on Swan's three-man team at Pacific Bitcoin. For those of you who are concerned about that. So, Alex, I got a little Della Dova story. Basically, when I was going to one of the Swan Salons in the Bay Area, um, 
you know, uh, Della Dova is going to speak there. So, uh, I had a chance to connect with him beforehand and, you know, I'm a pretty hardcore Warriors fan. Grew up in Oakland Bay area. And for those that remember, Della Dova was like this annoying, super, he, he actually, you know, slowed down Steph Curry. He's one of the few guys that could slow down Steph Curry on the court. So I'm like, oh, you know, uh, it's going to be hard just t- talking with this guy. So I was stuck with him in the lobby for a while before the Swan Salon, and I got to catch up with him. But, like, the dude is an amazing human, very solid person, super humble, really hungry um, and, and, like, fascinated with Bitcoin and, and uh, definitely on the mission. So it's a huge add-on for Swan. And uh, I know he's very interested in a lot of stuff in Australia, which has a lot of potential and needs Bitcoin. So very, very cool uh, announcement. Is it the same guy that would hit people up on Orange Pill app and give them free tickets to the games? That's a great question. I don't know. <laughs> I don't. I haven't heard about that. I didn't experience that. I think so, Mickey. They were talking about it in uh, Orange Pill Apps uh, spaces yesterday with Matt Brunel. I think that's what, who it was. He's a pretty serious Bitcoiner, though, and it's a, that's a good sign. I mean, he's doing it, in my opinion, for the right reasons, too. Like, there's a lot of, as many people know, a lot of celebrities that, you know, they did the crypto.com thing and like, you know, a lot of these VC driven shitcoin companies are out there tagging up these folks to do and promote. <laughs> Who was the guy? Um, is it Matt? I can't think of his last name. Pretty famous actor that they, that they tagged with a lot of, they had a lot of crypto.com. Damon, Matt Damon. Yeah. Are you in? All right. Moving on. Bitcoin adoption over time. I'm very thankful to have people who have been around for a long time, like Tomer and like Ant, who, uh, and others, many others, who kind of share the history of Bitcoin with us and kind of give us perspective and keep us on track for those of us who are new. I'm fairly, I'm still fairly new. I've been a Bitcoiner for now, maybe three years, which is basically a baby uh, in the space. And fortunately, I've had a lot of really good people around me um, who've helped me learn a ton. But anyway, the arc of Bitcoin's history is pretty fascinating in that it's been around a while, right? I, Jacob found this really funny video from 2011 uh, where these news reporters were basically talking about Bitcoin and it reminds me of the the first kind of interviews you saw where people in media were discussing email. Like, what does this at symbol mean? What is that, what is that all about? Um, and the price back then, it was just mind-blowing. So we have this clip. Let's play it and then we'll discuss have the dollar, Japan has the yen, and the internet 
It has the Bitcoin. Yeah, this online currency officer offers a new the way Bitcoin. to use money, but many aren't sold on the idea. Kelvin Isertine's J.D. Wallace is live tonight with his special report to show us what Bitcoin offers and why some people stay away from it. J.D.? Well, Heather, there's a reason we call it cold, hard cash. It's right here, but could it be a pain to send somewhere? And some think that banks are too involved with cash transactions and value. Well, that's where Bitcoin comes in. It's online, anonymous, and constantly changing in value. Both supporters and doubters agree Bitcoin, a new kind of money, is a risk. Taking All right, you can, online can be a game changer in the world. You can stop it there. The the point that's funny to me is, is that like uh Bitcoin was trading at like three dollars. Like in part of this video, like when one guy's saying showing you how you can buy it or whatever, it's like three dollars and twenty four cents or something like that. It's it amazes me how the how deeply ingrained it has been into the general public's psyche, I guess you could say, that like prices shouldn't fluctuate on anything. Like <laughs> it just doesn't make sense. Like the to, to think that you're dealing with a massive system of very dynamic supply and demand mechanisms. And to think that the prices won't fluctuate because of disruptions in supply or demand or the different legislative systems like tariffs and sanctions aren't going to impact prices. I just, I don't know. It, that's always the one thing that's brought up against Bitcoin. It's so frustrating to try and fight. There's a lot to take away from that video. Um, one of the things you, you just mentioned, Alex, is, you know, if people would look at it and say the price is $3 and say, oh, that's expensive because it's more than $1. And now people look at it and say it's more expensive because it's more than $10,000. And, and I remember back when people said, well, it's too expensive because it's more than $1,000. There's, there's a, if this is kind of like a different kind of unit bias. It's like a round number bias. Or, or something that people just say, well, you know, at some point people are going to say it's a hundred thousand dollars. It's over a hundred thousand, so so it's too exp expensive. There's no, and for people who've read VJ Boyapati's famous article, uh, the bullish case for Bitcoin, he talks about this that there's no real way to value money on a fundamental basis. People just tend to look at its price history and say, well, it's expensive or cheap relative to what it's been priced at. So I, I, I think that that's kind of an, a really interesting um, f aspect of this. Like Bitcoin has all these dimensions on which it's perfected. That video from the early days speaks to the ability to send money to anybody anywhere, uh, which is which f from an international perspective is still an issue. It's become a lot easier to send money to people. Cold, hard cash, I think, was what it was referring to. It's become a lot easier to send digital money within a country to people, uh, at least in well-banked nations. But um, but it's still a problem internationally. But this uh, debasement of money, which didn't feel like such an issue to the commenters at that time, is really the escalating and biggest issue which Bitcoin protects people from and and why it's worth 26000 instead of 3 uh, dollars. I'll kind of pause there.
I think it's interesting how the how the media seems to be understanding this better. So I saw was it Lisa Lisa Huff puts up articles on LinkedIn pretty much every morning, and this morning there was this CNBC article I think it was from like the last twenty four hours where. I mean, I had this stupid headline, which didn't really make any sense. But if you actually open the article and read it, you know, they're talking about like Bitcoin fixing negative energy prices in Texas, which was pretty sweet, right? And so I, I clicked on the author. I'm like, this this lady is like, whatever, you know, never heard of her before. Like, it's probably just some little freelance, but she's got like 20,000 followers on Twitter. It's Mackenzie Segalos, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's the name. Yeah. So I like, I don't know. Her. Into all of our spaces for a very long time. Yeah. So I mean, like, I thought that was pretty cool this morning, and, and sort of an interesting contrast against that video that that you guys put up. Well, in the yeah, because that, that was that was an article that I read too, Mickey. And like the the interesting thing is that I agree with the headline choice. I don't like they they must be really dying to get viewership because the headline was extremely. Um, inflammatory would be the word that I'm looking for because it was it suggested that Bitcoin miners uh, helped avoid an extinction level event for the grid down in Texas. Um, but the, I think the, the thing that was actually really good that you just brought up was that uh, talking about the potential for negative energy prices in Texas. And a lot of people think that that sounds probably think that that sounds a little ridiculous considering all the headline discussions with regards to ERCOT have been about how expensive energy or power has been down here, particularly for the last, uh, for this past summer. But what people don't understand is that there's been an overabundance of growth of renewable energy generation down here. And the, what's been choking them back is that they can't get they're They're struggling to get the interconnection permits in order to actually bring that power onto the grid. So like, that's where you run the risk of the, the power actually running negative, and then these operations have to wind down because they're not making any money. And then that's that's where she was getting at with the whole Bitcoin mining, providing a solution to that as well. And you got any perspective on the $3.24 to where we are today thing? I mean, I'm a noob, so... I mean, you said I was an oldie, but I feel like a baby in this space too. I'm consistently getting things wrong. I'm, uh, you know, there's so much that I don't know. And like, right when I think that I uh, can, you know, guess what Bitcoin's going to do, it, you know, it goes the other way. It's, you know, very hard to nail down because I think that we're trying to abstract this thing because we don't really know what it is. We're just like, where's this money is digital gold. And, you know, here's these charts and here's this price. And like, this is what it did last week. And this is what it did last year, this time. And this is what the chart looks like. If you lay this chart over these four years versus those four years, it's like, you get the same pattern and here we are. And it's like, but all of that stuff is only game on until it's not. It's just, you know, it's kind of a weird thing. Like, again, I, I agree with Tomer that like early on it, in my journey, it was weird to see like, 2600 and i was thinking that i was so late and that it was like you know i had already ignored it for years but then i'm thinking to myself like wow it's so expensive 2600 like whoa like <laughs> and again i didn't know what i didn't know maybe if i went into it today like with all of my knowledge today i would go oh my gosh like boom like this is so cheap 2600 oh my god but 
at the time it felt expensive. Then in this cycle, I sat back and I watched as everything blew up and it was like way over the all time high of before, not just in the 20s, but in the 60s and the 50s and hanging around for a while in the 40s. And, 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 you know, a lot of people are buying up there, you know, stacking myself included, you know, we're all upside down underwater right now. And waiting for this big bang to come allegedly hanging in for the having you know and it's like but i think i believe personally in my in one man's belief in my heart that in the future very near future relative to years that we're going to look back and it's going to be like oh my gosh 60,000 like you know 20,000 I can't believe I thought that was so expensive for Bitcoin. And the other part is when people do come at me and tell me that it's so expensive like that, and they're like, you know, it's going up, it's going, or, you know, it's so expensive now. <laughs> and I'm like, what are you waiting on, man? It's hard to wrap their head around that when I ask them that question. But if you under, I mean, I'm sure you all understand what I'm saying. It's like, yeah. You're looking at this chart. You, if you want to ascribe a chart and, and price action to this thing over a period of time, then what are you waiting on? And if you really want to look at the interesting piece, like I'll show them the lows. I like looking at the lows of, of like, you know, over a period. And I'll show that to the people and that, that'll help them kind of understand things. And then, the other one is the buying a house. There was some picture that was going around for a while back in the day on Twitter. And it would show like, you know, how many, how many Bitcoin it would take to buy a house per year. And then, you know, look, this thing may not go. I said it's game on until it's not. It may, it may not get to where we all want it to go. But at least looking back at this, you know, again, this chart that we're ascribing to it. You know, you can see that the cost of the house has gone down dramatically in Bitcoin terms on this picture. So I'll show them that too. Price action is a funny game in Bitcoin and it, it, it's a mind fuck. It still fucks with my mind a lot. But, you know, I mean, it's something to watch. It's crazy to watch and it's crazy to watch how it goes. I feel bad for the people who did pay in the 60s and the 50s and they're like waiting around. <laughs> but if you did, if they sold out and got out, so be it. We'll see them a little bit later. But if they didn't and they're still holding on, then I'm not going to feel bad for them for long. Hey, uh, real quick, Peter, before you chime in, uh, Alex, what time What time are you guys bringing Giga on? 10.30 or is it 10? Because I have a call coming up here in 12 minutes and I'm going to try and speedy back uh, a call with a client and try to get back here and speedy back to like chat with Giga Energy and you guys about all that stuff. Yeah, go to your call. They're coming on the middle part of the second hour, so we got okay, cool. So I, I don't I don't think there's ever been a fractal, which is what Ant's talking about, but you know, about overlaying, you know, past history onto current history and and assuming that it's going to be I don't think there's ever been a fractal in any kind of chart that has ever not been broken. Um, it just, it's, it's just, it's kind of a ridiculous fractals are just a ridiculous thing to do. The, the only thing that matters in price action is when you overlay Bitcoin 
against anything else. Bitcoin is slowly marching up and to the right and everything else is devaluing against it. That's the only chart that really, I think, I think matters. Um, I've only been in since 21. <clears throat> I bought a, a lot of Bitcoin between 40 and 60. I bought a lot more between 40 and 30. And I bought even more between 30 and 26, or excuse me, 30 and uh, 16. And, um, you know, I am, I, it's funny. Every now and then I go, God, I'm just, I got no diversification. What the fuck? But then I go back to that chart that shows Bitcoin gaining value against every other thing in the world. And I'm like, well, hold on. I don't need diversification. I don't need to fuck with all that. That's my fiat infected brain trying to outsmart this savings technology. And so then I feel very comfortable again. And, you know, there's other there's other aspects of Bitcoin. There's other properties and functionality of Bitcoin that make it even more valuable to me. It's transportable. I can use it anywhere in the world. Um, I don't think there's a place in the world that I would not be able to um, take my Bitcoin and convert it into uh, the local fiat currency to be able to um, function wherever I'm at. It might be a little difficult, but I, I can find that way. Um, and there's more and more technology coming online like Cash App, as, as uh, uh, Wicked uh, so aptly described to us yesterday. Um, that allows for uh, individuals to utilize this saving technology and know that their money, their value is not only um, secure, not only um, non, you know, it's, it's censorship resistant, but on top of that, um, everything else is devaluing in its face. Well, first of all, y'all keep it up because the price of Bitcoin is going up as you speak. So I think these words are really hitting the market uh, profoundly. Second, you know, everything you guys are talking about with Dan, it just makes me think that, you know, Bitcoin. Who didn't just check the price when Dom said that, you bastard? <laughs> I only checked the price 46 times a day down from 93. So there's a stat for you. Um you know, Bitcoin's a tale of many stories going on simultaneously. Uh, and and mentioned one this morning where, you know, it's being built out. There's things being built out as far as utility and use, you know, in real time. Um, there's the asset story, everything going on with the ETF and all that stuff. So there's a lot of things going on. Something I thought about with adoption the other night. Tomer will like this one. I had a Tomer moment where I heard this noise in my house. And um, someone was jamming something in my mailbox. And I was like, oh, what's that? And I go to my mailbox and it's like this magazine of ads and a bunch of junk mail. And I'm like, dude, am I still getting the mail? Am I still getting physical mail? So, you know, I, of course, go to Google, always thinking in the Bitcoin mindset. I'm like, when was email invented? You know, 1971, first prototype. 1990, available to the public commercially. And here, here we're at a 2023, and someone just walked down the street on foot and jammed endless amounts of useless paper in my mailbox. Um, and it's just a, you know, 
there's a lot. Some things take time. Some things move quicker. Some things are outdated and still happen. And it's interesting to watch the evolution of Bitcoin in the different areas. It touches where it's going to move quick, where it's going to move slow. But there's a lot of things going on at the same time. Yeah, and there's multiple converging factors going on here. One of which is, as Peter mentioned, right? The the problem is, as human beings, we're trying to value things, right? And we're always trying to do that. Like, this is what investment professionals do. They try to figure out what is the real value of any particular thing. And with Bitcoin, it's especially hard because this isn't just like me theorizing about it. There are attributes of Bitcoin that are unique in terms of mankind has never seen these attributes and something you could store value in before. The limited supply part, the instantaneous transfer of value without gatekeepers part, just so many aspects of it are completely unique. So here we are as humans trying to wrap our mind around what this means. And then you add to that the problem with, with fiat continuously devaluing. So, and, and we're measuring it in fiat. We're measuring it in U.S. dollars for the most part. So that's why P Peter was right. Like when you compare it against other things, hard things like land or gold or oil or whatever, that probably is a much, much more accurate picture. And maybe this is just me, but I've, I really feel like Bitcoin is scratching at the surface of a secret that human beings have been trying to discover for our entire existence. That's just my opinion. And that goes back to the whole storing of energy and labor and wealth thing that I have theories about. But I mean, they're just, it's very hard to articulate. And it's very hard to wrap your mind around it. Even when you think you understand it, you know, there's times like this where it's going sideways for a really long time and you start to question. I was like, what, do I really know what I think I know? It's interesting. Like, I see, I see capitulation sometimes. Like, I see people who, like uh, Peter was saying, they were buying in the 50s and in the 60s and they, they held on this long. Like, it's been almost two years since that um, all-time high, right? And they've held on this long, but some of them are starting to sell it. Like, some of them are like, I don't know, you know? I, and I don't know what the individual situations are. Maybe just somebody just needs to raise cash and they don't actually want to sell it, but they, but they do. And it's not a lot, but it's... To me, I notice it because, you know, Swan, we're very head, heavy on education. We make sure people... We do our best to, to help people understand what this thing is, what we think it is, anyway. And um, like, we don't have a lot of sellers aside from like OGs and miners. There are, there are OGs who are sitting on gigantic stacks of Bitcoin and mining companies and stuff like that. But it's a very interesting phenomenon. I wanted to touch on uh, what you were just talking about, as far as uh, you know, capitulation versus reinforcement. You know, Bitcoin really stimulates that, you know, proving yourself by re doing more research only to reinforce your beliefs or disprove what you previously believed. But Bitcoin continues to be a ground. It continues to be a foundation where not only do you discover monetary policy, you discover the history of money, you discover incentives, you discover how, you know, free markets work best, whereas 
if you're propping up zombie ideas and zombie companies with fiat that can be printed for free, whereas everyone else has to work for it. It just all comes back to Bitcoin. And Bitcoin is a transformation. And like you said in the past, Alex, it's a crucible. You know, we, we believe what we believe because we've spent a long time thinking on it and trying to disprove ourselves. And we talk about it and go through the Socratic method of asking questions. You know, we want to be proven wrong. You know, if we're putting our life savings into something, we want to be proven wrong. Like, but we keep discovering that this is the truth. And until someone proves it otherwise, it'll continue to be the truth because it's verifiable fully. Yeah, and then you have situations where you have very long-term notable, highly respected individuals in traditional finance who are looking at it, scratching their heads, trying to figure it out. Like, the one that comes to my mind is Ray Dalio. This guy is watching his journey over the last couple of years and in, in relative to his understanding and perspective on Bitcoin has been interesting because little by little, he's creeping towards understanding. There's a recent... I think it was recent. I don't know the exact date, but he did a um, he did a pod with Lix Friedman. They were talking about Bitcoin, and he he's stepped even in my mind. He's stepping even closer to Bitcoin. He still has some reservations about it, which you'll hear in this clip that we're about to play. But uh, it's fascinating to me how how far he's come. So, if you're ready, Jacob, let's roll that one. Bit well, the evolution of Bitcoin over the years is one of the things that has um, in influenced changes in my view. Um, it has proven itself um, something like 10, 11 years ago. Imagine the programming of this, and here's the, you throw it out, and that's the idea. It has not been hacked. It has um, um, operated, it, it is built it has come an amazing way um, over that 11 years to be um, maybe uh, probably the most excited topic among a lot of people um, and has been used and, and is now um, has obtained, you know, the status of having imputed value. At the same time, it is one of those assets that is an alternative money. I think we're entering an era where um, there's going to be a competition of monies. Um, because of the printing of fiat money um, and the dep depreciated value, there will be a competition of monies. Um, and Bitcoin is part of that competition. But the money has two purposes, a medium of exchange and a storehold of wealth. Um, and we are looking for, uh, um, and it's portable. And you can, and it's best if it's recognized in other countries. Um, so gold is one of those. So I look at it as an alternative gold, but I look at a number of things as alternative gold. Um, and I think that, and I think, and gold is still my favorite because of certain qualities. For example, um, you can't trace it. In, in Bitcoin, you can 
trace who owns it, where it's going, and and so on. Governments can have that ability to trace it and so on. A gold piece of coin, it's it's not connected. I think not connected has benefits, particularly in a world where maybe connections can be more risky. All right. Does anybody have any ob- observations about his thought process there? First, a question. How, how recent is that? When, when did he make these comments? It's a good question. Jacob, do we have a date on that pod? I'm going to get IT on it right now. Let's you know in a second. Like, I'm just curious if it's a couple of years old or if it's in the last month or so. If I had that- to guess, it's probably more recent. Because if you if you watch the arc of the way he thinks about Bitcoin, even as recently as Davos this year, he wasn't talking about it like that. It seems to be 2021. Damn, J- Jacob, IT is killing it today. Davos' comments remind me of uh, Dr. Peterson's comments when he was on the safety and that aha moment. Safety and discovery through you know, energy, utilizing stranded energy to monetize it and then potentially grow communities starting with an, an energy source. And then, you know, Dalio making discoveries through his connections. It seems like each person has their own independent aha moment from the many aspects of Bitcoin. Many aha moments, right? What is the aha, aha moment he's missing based upon what he just said there? Well, it, like if it's a couple of years old, the comment uh, from 2021, I remember where he was. He just he didn't continue uh, the pursuit of inquiry into Bitcoin and identifying its advantages over gold. Like that to me was where his his curiosity kind of peaked out, and he he, he went down the Bitcoin rabbit hole a little bit, and then. As, as his comment suggested, he found he found some interest in gold at the time. And I know he had personal things like um, he had a tragedy in his family and uh, and he retired at the same time. So I, I just think he hasn't we, we haven't heard from him about Bitcoin in in a couple of years. And he started down the down that path. I mean, for me, the thing with gold um was that it was very interesting at a point in time, but I lost interest in it. And and then when my interest in money resurged, it was because of Bitcoin. Um, I've all, I think the problem with gold is it's not really usable in this modern world. I, the vacation I was just on, by the way, I went to Alaska and I went to, um, we went to some of these old gold rush uh, towns and they talked about how gold was being used during the gold rush as money and you know miners would come back and they would just have gold dust in their on their body and they would pat the gold dust down into the floor and they would and they would that was what they would trade for drinks at the tavern and then the tavern would sweep up the floor at night and extract the gold dust so there was just a time when it was understood and accepted and its limitations and like literally using its dust were accommodated for but that's just not the way it's, you know, that's so inconceivable uh, today when everything is precise and perfect. And it's just like we live in a different world. And I think that that's gold's biggest problem is is its physicality, is its non-connectedness. So 
while Ray Dalio has this legitimate concern that he raises that Bitcoin is connected and its connectedness is traceable and its traceability means you can be identified, there's there's countermeasures to deal with that. But at the same time, being disconnected in a highly connected world is utterly impractical. That was extremely well said. Does anybody else have anything to add? All right, I'll add one thing. The two things that he mentioned that I that stood out to me are exactly the same things that Tomer identified. First of all, the not connected part. He's arguing basically that it not being connected is a good thing, but you have to think this through. What does the world look like in a scenario where you need an item to trade with that's not connected? That's a pretty dark scenario. Ant, you have a thought there? No, I was going to say something, but then I decided not to. All right. So the not connected part, I suspect that's a very, if we're at the point where we're not connected or we have to use money that's not connected, that's not a good place to be at all. Uh, So I'll just leave it at that. I, I don't think the odds of that are super high. I mean, the direction that the governments of the world are going are obviously pretty concerning to me and many other people who are attracted to Bitcoin because it offers this ability to basically transact without government's permission. But the second part that he mentioned about it being traceable, while that is true, like Tomer said, that's only true if you don't know about the privacy tools that are available to make it essentially not uh, traceable, so to speak. So, and, and what's more important than just traceability is this permissionless nature, right? Like, you can, whether it's traceable or not, you don't need permission, right? And I think that that's that's a more powerful suit trait of it than it's anonymous, but requires but might require permission, or or it is traceable, but so what? You can still use it without anybody's permission. So this free, because I I actually think that in the long term, some measurement of traceability is is a positive thing when it's combined with its permissionless nature, its censorship-resistant nature, because it forces everyone to accept that people have the right to spend money with, you know, and, and not to chase people down. It's like there's nothing you can do about it. So let people live, like live and let live um, and accept that r- rather than fight this endless battle of for the sake of security or for the sake of some emergency that governments are incentivized to create, we should limit people's freedom. And and I think that, we'll, I mean, we'll see, but the ability for you to spend your Bitcoin, even though it's traceable, I, uh, unstoppably, is a very powerful force of resistance in the face of power lusters lusting for more power and saying, well, you know, I want to be able to do X, Y, and Z to people and it's like, well, you can't. Bitcoin is spendable permissionlessly. I'm going to broadcast a transaction. Somebody's going to mine it. And, and I, that's not to say that I don't think that privacy is important. I just think acknowledging the fact that it, we don't have this perfect privacy. Um, and look, you can be spied on with any kind of thing. Someone could follow you around and see if you're spending gold coins. But this notion that um, whether it's traceable or not, it's still within my uh, what's the word, um, purview to use it, um, that w- without somebody stopping it is 
is really important. And it, and it's important that governments see and that power lusters see that they can't stop someone from using it. Hey, Ray, I've got a message for you. I went into a bank recently and tried to make a cash deposit into somebody else's account. And they told me they do not accept cash because it's not traceable. Hello? And the traceability what? also reinforces its finite supply. You know, if you have a bunch of untraceable Bitcoin being spent everywhere that can't be traced, then how do you possibly enforce the finite supply? And well, traceability, is- traceability and auditability, auditability of the supply are two different things, right? It's important not to conflate those. And that, and that's what I mean. You know, audibility, audibility, excuse me, auditability and being able to make sure what's being spent is authentic without involving any sort of third party. You know, there's there's a network, and when Bitcoin is spent, you know, people verify that it's actually genuine instead of somebody doing something you know, shady or trying to spend big Bitcoin. So, you know, having that authenticity and and that the verifiability reinforces the finite supply and makes sure that, you know, everyone is operating within the terms that are set out. I think Tomer made a really good point about it being unstoppable and like publicly unstoppable because in you have to also think that scenario through in in, in if he's concerned about it being traceable, um, what does the world actually look like at that point? Like, are governments actually chasing people down who are doing Bitcoin transactions in that scenario where it's a bad thing? That's pretty creepy. Uh, so, yeah. What's this Bitcoin thing y'all are always on about? I jump in here, man. Sorry. Uh, yes, I absolutely agree with Tomer. Um, in Venezuela, for example, I will. I think a lot of Venezuelans will also think similar to me as we would prefer to have Bitcoin, the on-chain uh, transactions being being able to be audited and being able to be traced if there is a suspicious transaction by the government, especially by the government, because it's very cor- a lot of corruption. So that will eliminate that or minimize that. But also keep in mind that Dalio doesn't understand about the Lightning Network. And the Lightning Network gives you a little bit of privacy when you make transactions on, on, on Bitcoin. Is Bitcoin being used in Venezuela uh, pretty widespread, or, or is it still just kind of a store of value for people? I think it's mostly store of value for very few people. The Venezuelans, unfortunately, the ones that understand Bitcoin, most of them are outside of Venezuela, unfortunately. I don't know why is that, but that's, that's how it is at the moment. All right. If we're done with that topic, here's a different one. This is not going to be anything incredibly new, but it, it came out in an article lately, and I thought it was funny because here's here's what it says. It goes, the Federal Reserve says stable coins could become a source of financial instability. <laughs> 
So they're worried about finance. They're worried about this this thing um, creating financial instability because they're not, of course. A new report from the Federal Reserve Banks of Boston and New York draws parallels between stablecoins and traditional money market funds. It suggests that these coins could transmit instability to the wider financial system akin to money market stresses during previous crises. So what they're really saying is, in my opinion, the free markets are bad um, if you can instantly transmit value around the world that they cannot control. This is somehow bad. Anybody have any thoughts on that? Yeah. <clears throat> I I recently um let's see, how do I put this? I recently had a falling out with an individual. Um and they are in uh, Colombia. And um during that falling out, I was basically blocked on all social media and couldn't um talk to the person and i held some of that person's um bitcoin and i wanted to get it back to them <clears throat> i did some chain analysis was able to find an address that i was 99% was sure was theirs uh portland hodl actually helped me do this um but it, we were 99% sure that it was theirs i sent a small amount of value back to it I continued to watch that address. I saw value move out of that address. So I knew somebody had control of the keys um, and uh, then uh, eventually was able to uh, determine with 100% assurity that that was indeed that person's uh, address. And I was able to send that value back to them without um, without having any communication with them. So I, I would say that that is a pretty goddamn good reason to uh, be able to have Bitcoin and to move stuff permissionlessly um, around the world uh, nearly instantaneously. I wonder if anybody's done any work to estimate the amount of um, productive energy and value that's lost based upon the gatekeeper system. Meaning... You know, when you have gatekeepers in the way, they're basically seeking rent on stuff. And ultimately, it, it probably slows down the speed of commerce because it introduces like hurdles to overcome. There are, I've talked to people who are running businesses, international businesses, who are using stable coins to move value around the world as opposed to actually transiting U.S. dollars via SWIFT or whatever the case may be, because it's just faster, it's less cumbersome, and it costs them less. So I wonder how much globally, how much value is lost because of all these gatekeeper systems and how much value is going to be unlocked when some of that stuff starts to go away. Tao would be an excellent... Uh, person to describe that he has uh, intimate knowledge of the um, the flow of uh, value as it moves across um, different organizations and different gatekeepers. Yeah, it's more than the money too. Like you called it a speed bump. It's like it's a speed bump in time too. Dealing with these layers of these people with their hands out, basically. Yeah, and they get they get to take that value. And I'm sorry, Ant, did you stop? Your speaker's off. 
No, it's not. Um, and they get to whoever whoever holds that value overnight as it hits that speed bump, they get to uh, dump it into the reverse repo and uh, make money off of it. And that's what it all comes back to. It's a crazy, wild, wild world we live in. I want to say good morning and welcome to Giga Energy. How are we doing? Is it Matt or Ben on the handle? Howdy, Alex. Yeah, this is uh, Matthew. How you doing? Doing outstanding. Thanks for joining us, man. How are you doing? I'm doing well. Just uh, sitting in Texas on this nice, you know, 90-degree morning, waiting for uh, the, the heat to start climbing on a, coming in uh, to October now. Right on. We'll be digging in with uh, Giga here in a little bit. Uh, before we do that, though, just wrapping up our current conversations. Does anybody have anything else to add on uh, this unlocking of value, the sort of entrepreneurial flow that slowed down because of this stuff? If not, we'll hit some stats. I've got a quick announcement to make, and then we will we'll roll with Giga. All right. Let's do some stats. And if you are ready, the Bitcoin impenetrable freedom force field level is at. I got 450 exahash per second on the seven day. Current block height, 800, uh, 809,750. And mempool transactions are down. To, I say down. Down to 200, uh, like 203,000. 204,000 estimated about, uh, depending on your mempool. Fastest so you say down, right but the but the mempool is actually clearing. So all those transactions yeah. that have been waiting are starting to clear. Well, out. I mean, there was, uh, you know, you've seen this BRC20. I mean, they're, they're, they're like releasing different shit coins and stuff like that, that they're, you know, uh, putting into the mempool and paying a lot for. But it's... Uh, they basically ran ran their full run of their of their supply, so they're 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 done, and so now it's kind of clearing out a little bit. Uh, you know, I lost Dan. It's just me. No, nope. he's got there. really shitty connectivity issues. It's this room that I'm in. I'll go to another room, but yeah, uh, yeah, get out of the Faraday room, man. Yeah, the skiff. Yeah, I, I don't know what what where I drop, but I was talking about you know this BRC twenty uh, uh, shit coin basically got to a hundred percent emission, so there's no more of those coins uh, going to be emitted. So you know we have a little window before runes comes out or whatever else other BRC twenty shit coins come out, but we got this little window where. Fees are low again, eight sats per V byte. It's been a while since uh, to get into the next block. Fastest fee, uh, you know, it's been a while since we've had those single digit numbers. We have two hundred ten days to go until the next having. Hanging in for the having, and right now on the two hundred day, we are up about thirty two percent in U.S. dollar terms. All right. And you can still buy 3,775 sats per dirty fiat dollar. 
and we have already mined 92.84% of the total supply of Bitcoin that will ever be mined in the history of the human race, so you might want to get some. Peter, go ahead. Have you shilled PB yet? Because I am so freaking excited about it. I get to ride my motorcycle 1,500 miles to get there, through the rain most likely. I don't know what the fuck it is with PB and the weather change in California. Um, but I'm going to do it anyways. I get a, I get a, I get to hang out with three Bitcoiners along the way, and then I get to hang out with my stack chain Go Pios brothers in uh, in in PB and uh, all the other uh, the all the other Bitcoiners and and the cafe uh, Bitcoin crew. I'm super excited. Me too, man. It's uh, it's coming up. So for those of you who don't know, we're going to be doing Pacific Bitcoin next week. So there will be no Cafe Bitcoin Monday or tu- or Tuesday. We're resuming Wednesday from the hotel, and then Thursday, Friday, we will be broadcasting Cafe Bitcoin live from the Swan Dome starting at 9 a.m. Eastern each day. It's only going to be a one-hour show, um, but super fired up about that. It's going to be me. Ant will be there in person on stage for the first time with us doing that. Also, Peter Dombey. Um, Did you say- Thursday. Sorry. Did you say 9 a.m. Eastern? Yes. What? Yes. Uh, Thursday, we've got Ben Perrin, BTC Sessions, joining us for that segment. And then on Friday, we've got both Tomer Strolight and Tip NZ joining us. That's going to be really cool. Looking forward to that. We'll do it live! Fuck it! Do it live. I can. I'll write it, and we'll do it live. Tip NZ is going to be cool. there. Yeah, man. Oh fuck! I am so fanboying out right now. The Thursday and Friday shows will be at nine a.m. Pacific, twelve Eastern. Thank you. Oh, I'm sorry. I said Eastern, didn't I? I'm on. Well, Wednesday, I think we will be doing nine a.m. Eastern which is a little early on, I mean, 10 a.m. Eastern, like the normal time on Wednesday. But Thursday and Friday, we're going to be opening up Pacific Bitcoin. So we will be on California time. So the show will be starting about 12 Eastern, 9 a.m. Pacific. And then we're going to be running the Swan Dome all day through spaces. So all of the Swan Dome segments and panels, you're going to get to see those. And then if you're interested in seeing the hard money stage, that will be over on YouTube. I don't necessarily want to switch the topic away from Pacific Bitcoin, but I did have a comment to make on um, on the mempool and this whether or not I, it's going to clear up. So if we're ready to move on, I'm happy to switch. Otherwise, I'll wait. No, please do. Go ahead and do that. And then we will start chatting with Matthew about what's going on latest with Giga. I'll be quick because I'm eager to hear Giga as well. But it's just like uh, over the last couple of days as I've been trying to catch up on what I did miss while I was away, it does look like um, all these ordinals, like ordinals came out with this idea of rare sats that I don't see anybody playing with and inscriptions, which was the, the idea of putting images on the blockchain, which has diminished significantly. What caught on was this crazy thing called BRC20 tokens, which I really discourage anyone from in, investing in or, or even playing with. But that's kind of what's driven up these um, the backlog of transactions as people try to mint tokens that are of zero value and highly 
centralized in, in terms of their tracking or highly difficult to track. In the last couple of days, the developer who created ordinals and inscriptions has come out with a proposal. You guys may have discussed this, so I apologize if I have, uh, called runes, which is a more efficient way of trying to do these tokens on the Bitcoin blockchain. But in that, in his blog post announcing this, he said, look, it's, it's damage minimization. I, he thinks that 99% of all of these things are scams, uh, avarice and greed and, and, and BS. So it kind of puts, when the founding developer says, look, I'm, I'm putting the, you know, I think it's a waste of time to do all of this stuff. Here's another way to do it. It kind of puts the chokehold on, um, on both sides of this thing, right? It, it's, it's this acknowledgement that the BRC20 tokens are are themselves scams. And so the, the people who are excited about it, who are promoters of these scams, find themselves in a difficult position because they're saying, oh, here's something new that he's done. It's going to be great. But he does, he does it with the acknowledgement that these people are scammers and that this new innovation of his is to minimize the footprint left by these scammers. So I think it's I think it's ironic. It's clever. He's a curious guy. I can't say that I really understand him. He's kind of like this mad scientist. Uh, but uh, but it is interesting to see. And the fees are down substantially, right? Like it's it's five satoshis per uh, V byte now, down from it's been twelve to eighteen for a really long time. And just looking at averages, um, and so I think that the enthusiasm behind these things has a big question mark on it. And people's expectations that you know they were minting something that they might be able to trade to some greater fool uh, down the road is maybe uh, waning substantially. And so maybe this episode is drawing to a close. We'll see. Yeah, I, I also don't. I personally don't uh, don't believe uh, what he's saying. Like uh, you know, I think that it's it's what do they call it? It's like a dog whistle almost to the shit coiners out there and the scammers that like, Oh, I don't really like, I don't think this is a good idea. And like, trust me, bro. Like, you know, I built this thing, but like, I just think it's mostly bullshit. And like, you know, there's going to be like a bunch of scammers on here probably. And like, you know, it's my new, or it's like my new ordinal system 2.0 runes, like, and, and everyone's going to use it and it's going to be shit coins, but I'm not going to, I can't do anything about it, bro. I just, you know, I, I put this thing out. I don't really agree with it. Yeah, I'm not <laughs> buying that shit. So it's kind of like I'm building this this scammery thing, and there's probably going to be a bunch of scammers using it, so don't blame me later when you get scammed. And we're opening up for business. Come on, guys. Let's go. I, either way, his announcement does significant harm to the people who've been doing BRC20 tokens right? with the notion that they're inefficient, they're useless, they're scams, stop using yeah. them, right? So he's he's done a lot of harm to the people who've been congesting up the blockchain. Um, yeah. they, they were in for it anyways. I, I think he, I think maybe the, the art, the, what I'd say is he's, he's brought about an event that is making the inevitable occur. And like the, yeah. these things weren't going to go anywhere. It was just way too complex, way too inefficient, way too expensive, all these huge problems. And, um, and he's basically acknowledged that as the lead developer. I'm not trying to make excuses for him and I'm not, I'm not even trying to judge him at all here. I'm just saying, you know, what's, what's occurred here and what's happened and looking at the fees. I mean, I don't want one day to be the judge of it all, but if we, if we see the backlog of, 
these transactions diminishing significantly, then all we have to really worry about is do the runes catch on or is there just enough discouragement uh, that his comments and other other people's comments may develop that people don't don't really bother here. I don't know. It's hard to say. I mean, it, it's this notion of tokenizing other things is flawed and we've discussed it at great length and, and now is not the time because I want I want to hear from the giga guys but you know in future shows we can talk about why it doesn't make sense to have a billion tokens because you destroy the purpose of money if every single thing is a different token you want money to be one thing and everyone to agree on what the one thing is not for there to be one money that used to buy gum another one that used to buy cigarettes and another one that you used to buy potato chips and another one that you used to buy it starts to get ridiculous doesn't it because they're not cross they're not um for the most part they're not cross-functional or they're not fungible i mean you can make them fungible i suppose but it's like i i think of things like airline miles and stuff like that and like while it's while it's a great temporary kind of incentive like Ultimately, you can't use your airline miles completely fungibly across other things. So it's trapped in their their own proprietary ecosystem, right? Right. And you take a look and it's like it's a handful of goods that uh, or services that really develop these points. And these points are meant to drive loyalty in a competitive market, right? The reason that the airlines give you points is so that you fly with them rather than than with somebody else. But this doesn't scale. It would have scaled already to hundreds and hundreds of different things if it if it made a lot of sense. And it just makes sense in these narrow contexts where you can pool them and earn them. And if you actually look at it, you're you're better off collecting cashback rewards than mileage points because cashback rewards get debased or devalued. Sorry, not cashback rewards, but uh, points get devalued and debased quite frequently. And used to cost ten thousand points. To fly, you know, return somewhere now it costs twenty thousand points to fly somewhere return. So, the, there's somebody else in charge. There's somebody else who yeah. can issue these it, things. There's somebody else who can contract them. They're restricted in their ability to be spent in the first place. These tokens that are created out of thin air that have a name that have no tie-in to some company that can offer you anything is even more ridiculous, right? Because there's no reward. If it's just there's the hope that there's some greater fool who will buy them for something that is that does have value and, and utility down downstream. But since anyone can create any number of these tokens, they're ultimately worthless. I'm done on this for today. Yeah. Yeah. I, I didn't mean to uh, like diminish your points because you made good ones and uh, about that. I, I just only meant to highlight that, you know, how I felt about this. And, and also like when you see, that's the funny thing about this space, like in the old world in the legacy markets, you, you wouldn't telegraph bad information about your brand or what you're trying to do or the product you're releasing. Like that, that wouldn't typically be the approach. But, you know, things are different and backwards and topsy-turvy in this space. And, you know, we saw it with uh, SBF demonstrated it. You know, at some point, like you remember, Tomer, back in the day, those shitcoiners, they actually pretended. Like they tried and they would be like, this project has merit and like a real community and a sense of utility. And this is what we're going to do. And here's our. If somebody says community one more fucking time. Oh my God. Community. But now they don't even care. They just like blind, like, like blatantly, like we're like, this is our latest shitcoin grift basically. And it's in your face. So that's what I was trying to highlight is just that, you know, I, I don't trust that guy.
Could I could I uh, specifically request that when we get to talking about Giga, whoever's behind the Giga account, could you guys try and use the word community as much as possible for the next 20 minutes? 10-4, we could do that. <laughs> Believe in Charlie. We'll comply. Uh, all right, let's switch gears then. We've got Matthew Lostro, who is the co-founder of Giga Energy. So I'm just going to really quick, Matthew, if you don't mind, I'm not going to steal your thunder here. Hope you can tell us a lot more about the company, but just briefly, Giga captures stranded gas to power energy-intensive computing. Hmm. I wonder what that means. We also build, operate, and sell power... Gen- we, I'm reading the information off his website, and sell power generation equipment. These guys are based in Beaumont, Texas, founded in 2019. Very cool stuff. Tell us more. Howdy, Alex. Yeah, yeah. love to welcome you into the you know, Giga community. Uh, thanks for having us on. Um, yeah, so, I mean, Giga, it was started back in July of 2019 with my co-founder, Brent Whitehead. Uh, he's a third generation oil and gas in Texas. And so we ended up being the second guys in the state of Texas to mine Bitcoin uh, with natural gas uh, that was otherwise being flared off into the environment. And uh, the business has kind of iterated uh, over the past four, four and a half years uh, to date and uh, really had a very strong focus on manufacturing and vertical integration in terms of making money on the buy with these mining projects. So many people focus on having low operating expenses, but oftentimes you're not able to control that as much as one would want. And so what we focused on is controlling our lead times and controlling our capital expenditure up front. Uh, and so that's led to us kind of focusing in three major areas uh, with products that you know we now actually end up putting out into the market uh, on the power generation side. So we build our own natural gas generators, custom made specific to the applications in the oil field that we're running, uh, electrical equipment, uh, so switchboards, transformers, everything that we need uh, to have perfectly optimized for our own applications, and then as well as mining. So we built a, a wonderful air-cooled uh, mining container uh, called Gigabox. Uh, we will actually be bringing a 28,000-pound, uh, 40-foot uh, Gigabox to Pacific Bitcoin and be dropping that down. I think it's somewhere around the basketball hoop uh, area outside. So I'm having to get like a freaking, you know, 15 ton forklift to go. It's like this, like, you know, logistical nightmare. Uh, but I'm hoping it will, uh, you know, be pretty, uh, pretty exciting for everyone to see that. Uh, and then, you know, what we're uh, kind of working on the background, haven't made many announcements about it, is uh, actually a hydro or water cooled solution specific for the uh, micro BT computers, uh, completely containerized uh, and, and pre pre-connected on the dry cooler side. And so uh, we've never made a product that we ourselves don't use. That's how it stems out. And so doing a lot of things domestically, internationally, I continue expanding on, you know, mediating flared natural gas. So happy to to get into it. And hopefully that's a slight overview uh, to give context on the business. Very cool. That thing that you're talking about bringing in, like uh, how how big is it physically? So it's a 40 foot by eight foot. CSC shipping container. Okay. And um, what's it going to have in it? Is it going to be a generator? Or? No, so it's, it's a Bitcoin mining data center. So it can hold three oh, individual yep, yep. Yeah, S19s. Yeah. Very cool. So the um, 
So, so quick question about these custom generators. I suppose, and this is my completely layman assumption, because I have no idea how you guys determine this stuff, but uh, I would imagine that various different sites have different flow rates for gas, ver- thus have different capacities for how much power they can generate, et cetera. Is that why you do that? Is that why you build these kind of custom setups? So that's about 10% of the reason is having that kind of ability to fine-tune and paint your engine, per se. Uh, customize the radiator a little bit different. Customize the generator end. Maybe you, you change you know, the compression ratio on the engine, and whatever that may be. Uh, but about the other, other 90% is controlling your lead time and controlling uh, your capital expenditure. So right now, we're about four times cheaper uh, than if uh, you, know, you would have to go to Caterpillar or traditional OEM to purchase your your package or your generator package from them and you just have to get in line with every other major oil and gas company and uh the other part is controlling the timeline so you know industry average is probably you know in that 38 to 40 week time frame uh brand new off the lot uh production with our capacity is about 20 to 22 weeks right now that's crazy that is wild so in other words you order a generator it's like thanks for your order you'll get it in a year <laughs> That is oh, yeah, mind-blowing. That's, I mean, but that's just industry standard. You know, you want to, you know, an engine enclosure is going to take you two years to, to build that, to, to get in line uh, with just the pure amount of demand that's out there. That's wild. Uh, where do you guys sell your generators to? Wow. In what markets are you guys in? Physically shipping oh. to? It's all, all within the U.S. Uh, and, and again, the majority, like our focus, you know, specific, uh, really on the power generation side is to just own that for our own projects. As we're continuing to expand the business, we have people reach out to us. You know, maybe they want to buy a generator or whatnot. Uh, it's not a core part of the business on that end, per se, uh, in terms of, you know, our goal is to sell natural gas generators to the open market. Uh, but, you know, we do recognize its value. Of, you know, if someone else wants to purchase it from us, we, we're happy to do so. You know, I got a, I've got a question for you, Matt. Um, <clears throat> my numbers are a little bit off because I've been out of, I, I haven't been on on site for a while since Great American Mining got acquired. Um, the that size of container that you're taking to uh, Pacific Bitcoin, um, is that about a megawatts worth of demand, or is and then what's the what's the amount of hash rate that you can fit in with like you know more updated miners today? Yeah, so it is a 1.4 megawatt in terms of electrical capacity can hold 360 individual S19 chassis. If you have, you know, XPs uh, on that end, you know, you're going to be in that 120 range. So 120 times 360 uh, would be, you know, the kind of, kind of total hash rate uh, on that end. So, you know, talking about, you know, 43 ish petahash uh, overall in terms of what that system has to, to put out. And those containers we're printing off like crazy. We have 15 more in production right now uh, on our, you know, 90th gigabox in that range, I think. You know, so over, over 100, 120 megawatts so far in terms of total produced containers. So and our containers are, you know, for um, harsh environments. So we're actually selling them to both on and off grid people uh, as well for our own internal uh, operations. Do you guys... Um... Do you guys manage those operations? Do you provide those services or is it up to, or is it kind of like more up to the, the client? Like they can manage it themselves or you can provide those services as well for a premium. Yeah. In terms of external facing uh, 
externally facing at Giga, uh, we're purely a product company. Internally, we manage our own operations uh, and, and, and uh, yeah, run, you know, run everything from, we have a power division, so uh, your, own, your own generator company internal to Giga, where we have mechanics on staff to run our own engines. Uh, and then, of course, you know, we have ASIC te- technicians uh, to, to run in uh, the, the systems overall as well. You guys really do have a lot of demand. That's, that's a lot of stuff. I was just going to say, it's crazy. Like, uh, one question I have for you is, is that because the market's basically sideways, right? A lot of the public miners are, that has not slowed them down at all. Like, they're adding infrastructure like crazy, right? So, like, what have you guys seen? Are you seeing escalating demand, steady demand? Like, what, what's, what's the situation with you guys? Yeah, hash rates coming on like crazy. Uh, people are, you know, projecting projects you know, over the next, are placing POs, uh, you know, over the next 20 weeks, uh, just in terms of ridiculous volume. So every every major miner out there is is adding hash rate like crazy right now. Don't do not be deceived. Uh, and 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 that's kind of you know our electrical products, right? You know, we're building custom switchboards, right? Because we've been doing that for our own containers for you know three years now, uh, and so that kind of bleeds over into that market. So so we are working with a lot of those. Uh, major miners, you know, building our own PDUs that are UL certified from the ground up and then having, you know, our lead time for switchboards right now is about eight to 10 weeks on the high side. You go to Eaton or Schneider, you're looking at, you know, 30, 40 weeks uh, for that application. And so that's a big market that we're expanding into. So, you know, we kind of have some unique insights in terms of just how much capital uh, and brain power is being poured into expansion for the Bitcoin network. Where, um, I have a follow-up question for after this initial one. What, uh, where are, if you don't mind answering, you might not want to. Where are the majority? Of, where's the like the the biggest swelling of your guys' interest for for sales? Is it in Texas? Is it in North Dakota? Is it Georgia? Like where like where are you guys seeing the most interest? You know, it's it's all the usual states uh, that you mentioned. Um, yeah, I mean, it, it's all, it, it's just expansion of those current facilities, all those big players that we know about there. You know, you got stuff up in in New York and Pennsylvania and Georgia and Texas, uh, North Dakota. And so it's kind of, kind of all the usual on that end. Nothing, nothing out of the blue. Okay. And then the, the reason I asked was, um, I'm curious, have you guys seen, and maybe it's because it's only been a short amount of time, but, uh, recently texas was i don't know if they passed it but it was at least proposed the house bill 591 have you guys seen yep. any interest after that got got pushed through yeah so so my co-founder brent whitehead he actually helped write that bill uh with state representatives on that and push it through with the texas blockchain council uh so they were they were integral on that end in terms of you know getting uh, on par with uh, wyoming's bill uh for for that and so for everyone who doesn't know so house bill 591 uh covers uh, tax uh, abatement for what's called severance tax in the state of Texas. And so severance tax is essentially paying royalties to the state of Texas for any um, commodities that are produced out of the ground. So when you produce natural gas, it's like six, seven percent that you have to pay to the state of Texas. If you're using it uh, in a stranded application like Bitcoin mining, you do not have to pay that severance tax. And so uh, that bill was passed. And went into effect September one. I want to say, uh, and then I'm sort of very excited about that. 
Well, it's, it's specifically uh, if those commodities are produced or consumed within a thousand feet of the production operation, right? Or am I wrong? Exactly. Yeah. That's so, awesome. Exactly. And so it's big incentive out there. So there, I think, well, the incentive itself, I don't think has drummed up a lot of interest thus far. I think the news of the incentive uh, has, has drummed up the interest. The fact that, you know, state legislators are paying attention to it. Because it's a community thing. <laughs> We're all in this together. You know, you know, I've been listening and he has not said community once. Thank you. Actually, he said it once when he first started talking, Peter. Thanks for joining the Giga community. Uh, I hear that you guys are involved with Texas A&M and you guys are involved with mining education at Texas A&M. Can you talk to us about that? Yeah. Um, yeah, yeah. So, uh, for, for y'all that don't know, Texas A&M, uh, Harvard of the South is also what it's known as, uh, is the premier uh, oil and gas college, uh, in the U S. And so, uh, our firm, you know, my co-founder and I both went to that university a number of people at the company have gone to that university. It's known for having a very, very tight network on that end. Uh, it's one of the very few universities. Uh, it's actually, I think, the only university in the world that has uh, three, all three grants, land, space, and uh, sea. Um, grants from, from uh, the federal government. Uh, second largest landmass university uh, and next to Florida. And so just massive resources. There's over 50,000 undergrads uh, on campus uh, in College Station. And so... A&M has put themselves in a very unique position where they're, you know, really starting to pay attention to Bitcoin mining as it has implications for being large, flexible load on grid uh, and doing research around that. Uh, so uh, there's a professor, there's a couple, number of professors at the university, Leji, uh, who runs the Energy Institute, uh, who has, you know, now started uh, the, I think it's like uh, some sort of consortium uh, in terms of researching uh, Bitcoin's implication that, Giga, Riot, Marathon are all sponsoring. Uh, there's uh, the head of the electrical engineering uh, department, Dr. Prasad Ingenti, uh, is, is a part of this as well. Uh, and then uh, Dr. Karok Ray, who's from the business school, uh, a very awesome, uh, very involved, you know, has some connections to Swan as well, um, is uh, pushing a, a Bitcoin class, both from a technical sense. So Jimmy Song, you know, he's helping with teach, teaching essentially Jimmy Song's book. For the CS undergrads, uh, and then as well as on the business side, teaching, uh, bringing in all the, you know, there's a lot of uh, A&M grads uh, that are Bitcoiners out there, like Clark Moody. Uh, and so just on massive fronts across all ends, and then, you know, up soon to be, we'll be having, you know, a, 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 an A&M Bitcoin mine uh, up and running. Uh, so you should uh, see some uh, announcements on the front with that pretty soon. Is there is there a story behind that? Like, how did how did you guys get involved with helping Texas A and M with this Bitcoin mining education initiative? Butterfly effect and just pounding sand for like six years. Uh, so I, I I mean I went to A and M, joined when I was twenty seventeen. Uh, met Clark Moody uh, at like you know a campus library. He's super nice, uh, and he, he's you know he graduated there. Uh, got his master's in aerospace and, and um, met with him at the library while the S2X uh, fork failed. 
uh, on that end. And so um, met him and it's it just kind of this compounding effect back in um, just started orange peeling people. And then we, you know, we got an A&M Bitcoin conference going in 2021, I want to say. So, you know, you had Bill Miller, Ray Dalio, Tim Draper, you had that and it was in person. That was awesome. And, and all those things. And it was just kind of slowly a function of orange peeling people. And then A&M has such a profound history with energy. Uh, several people from ERCOT, you know, Texas's private grid sponsor the Energy Institute at Texas A&M. And so it's just very closely tied in with the state. And so, you know, the way mining is and, and the way um, Texas A&M is on the forefront of kind of this research, uh, it's, a, it's an organic fit. So you, you, it was basically just a cross-pollination of communities. <laughs> it's all communities, man. <laughs> it's all about the community. This is really, really cool. I did not know that about um, Texas A&M being basically the Harvard of the South and the top school for these types of uh, things. So that is actually really encouraging to me because of all of the FUD that's been thrown in regards to Bitcoin being a waste of energy or an inappropriate use of energy. I mean, there's just so many different attacking angles that the lizards have attempted to use. And literally the top minds in the world on energy production are super interested in it, involved in it, weighing in on it, probably going to be producing some pretty cool research on it. These are really great developments, man. I love hearing it. You know, and, and, and so Dr. Lazy is, he's awesome. I mean, he's, he's actually, you know, went to school with some of the old Bitcoin miners uh, back in the day. And so that is something where, you know, he's really, really putting uh, a big, big forefront on that end in terms of pushing uh, that, that Bitcoin production. Uh, and he's already put out uh, all these research papers about uh, Bitcoin mining and its implications on that end. So Very it's, cool. It's, uh, already seeing it. What's the Texas A&M Bitcoin mine? Like, what's what are the their reasons for wanting to do that? I mean, they, they just want to study just things in terms of electrical uh, load capacity, its flexibility, the fact that Bitcoin can turn off. Uh, you could turn Bitcoin mining off within one one sixtieth or, or one cycle has massive implications. There's very little load out there that can do that. And so, so when you have all this renewable load coming on, that's highly variable and you need to support the grid. Um, it may take three to four minutes to shut off a steel plant. You don't have that kind of time when it comes to, to you know the security of the grid. And so Bitcoin mining from a financial sense, as well as an engineering sense, has extreme flexibility. And so that's kind of one part, uh, looking at, you know, electrical specifications like harmonics, feedback into the grid, kind of just all on that end in terms of really having well-researched, uh, and then as well as, you know, um, optimization of Bitcoin mining from an electrical sense. So uh, PSUs, when they convert from AC to DC power, can you do that more efficiently? Just, just all things in between uh, on that end. Very cool stuff. If it's okay with you, Matthew, I'd like to open it up for general questions from the audience, if you're all right with that. Happy to give you some time at the end of the show to make some closing comments on anything you want. Um, it's been a cool conversation. Thanks for hanging with us. Yeah, absolutely. Happy to happy to chat. Okay, uh, let's go to Surfer Jim. Hey, guys. Thanks. Um, I've recently got way more interested in this um, 
natural gas mining stuff, um, partly because I'm involved in a project uh, here on Long Island where we're going to be making our own electricity using natural gas off the natural gas grid. But we're what we're going to do is we're going to balance our own load with Bitcoin miners because that's a thing. But what I learned recently is that the exhaust coming off a natural gas generator produces CO2 and water. And um, there's a company that will set up a capture system and pick it up and sell it out into the market for carbonated beverages. And I believe greenhouses use it. And I'm just wondering if that's anywhere in the um, business model of what you guys are doing. Do flared gas sites out there in the wild use that flared, uh, the exhaust off the, I would imagine they produce their own electricity for any buildings on site, but they don't produce excess because they don't have a reason to. Now you're giving them a reason to. But I'm just curious, uh, I don't know enough about the quality of the gas and the economics of building a capture system, system and trying to capture CO2 off of the exhaust of the generator, another revenue stream. But I'm just wondering if, if it's anything that is something that's on your radar that the industry talks about. Uh, because I believe it's a thing, and I just don't hear anybody talking about it very much. Thank you very much. Absolutely. And, Jim, you know, we met way back in the day, and I don't know if you remember it, the Block Boom 2019, um, just kind of when this, this idea was all getting started. Uh, but so the uh, implications, right, in terms of uh, second derivative revenues uh, and or efficiency gains off waste heat uh, is, is kind of the – the idea, uh, yes, it's a thing. Yes, there's possibilities. Are we looking at it? No. Uh, our co- way our company structure is very much 80-20 uh, in terms of how we approach uh, those systems. Is it profitable? Possibly. Um, but in terms of just kind of opportunity to cost with our time, uh, we, we don't focus on those kind of um, waste heat applications. Uh, it, it's not so much a waste heat application as much as it is an exhaust off the generator so that that's a different type of waste. It's it's CO two and water, so it's not environmentally unfriendly. Um, but but since you can capture the CO two, it's a it's another revenue stream. Now I understand you only have so much time for these things. Um, I would love to talk to you about this at Pacific Bitcoin. I'll try and find out the information that the guys I'm working with know about this company that will set up the capture system, and then they'll take part of the profits. So. It might be something you could very easily integrate. Uh, What I'm looking at, and I just want to make this one statement and I'll stop talking. I I got this vision in my head. You take waste, um, this natural gas that's being thrown away. You run it through a natural gas generator that produces free electricity because that was garbage waste. But it also produces exhaust that you can make money on. So the generator gives you two things a monetary exhaust and electricity, you send the electricity to a Bitcoin miner that produces revenue and heat. And so now the Bitcoin miner is producing two things. So you're taking garbage and turning it into four profitable streams. And I just think that's an amazing concept and Bitcoin is allowing for this. So thank you for the opportunity to say all that. And I'll talk to you at Pacific Bitcoin next week. And four, looking forward to it. All right, we got about four minutes left. Does anybody have any other questions? Yeah, I was just going to say that uh, this is one of the things I love about the oil and gas space. Like, I love all the conversation today. Uh, I'm glad that you guys are doing this uh, over there at Giga Energy. I 
like I've worked in oil and gas for a long time, many, many years. And uh, one thing that I've observed is just how quickly uh, the industry moves on technology when it works. Like you'll see it happen. Like when when this industry starts to adopt something like, you know, dissolving bits. And I've said it before, like walking rigs and just like all this these innovations that come about. Once it works, they get on it fast. That's what excites me about projects like this. You know, it's like, I, I don't think these types of things are, you know, you hear about not being priced in. Like, I don't think things like this are really priced in uh, when you think about kind of the future of this thing. The, the, the funny, like kind of indulgence to think about as a Bitcoiner personally is, and I don't know how it would play out, you know, but wouldn't it be funny in some scenario where, okay, uh, we're doing like the waste energy mining some bitcoin on the side we're still we're still drilling for oil we're, we're going to get the oil for you guys but then we're also you know returning a little bit of bitcoin to the operator uh, at the end of the job and uh whatever that's how it goes for a little bit but then at some point the value becomes recognized and it's like is there a greater than zero percentage of some you know uh uh drillers that are like not only allocating their waste now to the to the mining, but like, do they spring up a, a, another doghouse with like some more mines in there? And they're like, you know, putting a little oil on there on the side. Who knows? You know, it's pretty funny to think about. Absolutely. I mean, I think uh, the, 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 we're just at the forefront of this industry getting started. All right. We're pretty much near the end of the show. Uh, Matthew, I want to thank you for joining us. It's been a great conversation. Learned a lot from you today. Uh, so do appreciate it. We'd love to have you back sometime. Is there anything you want to hit? Any major announcements? Any? Um, what are you guys most excited about? What are you working on? How can people find out more about you? Yeah, sure thing. I mean, please, you know, go to our website, reach out if you have any interest, uh, questions uh, on, uh, you know, our infrastructure on that end. Uh, we have a lot of, you know, very cool products uh, and international announcements uh, on the on the forefront, and so please, you know, feel free to stop by at Pacific Bitcoin. Uh, you know, I think it's October fifth and sixth. Uh, by the box, check it out. Say howdy. Yeah, I want to come check you guys out. I'm close by. I'm going to come swing over there. I want to see what you guys are doing. That's pretty cool. I'm glad to see you guys today. I appreciate it. And, and you know, Alex and, and, and uh, Swan guys, you know, thanks uh, so much for having us on. I really appreciate it. Of course, brother. All right. That's a wrap. Again, next week during Pacific Bitcoin, no cafe on Monday or Tuesday. We're resuming Wednesday. We will be broadcasting live from the Swan Dome on Thursday and Friday at 9 a.m. Pacific time. And it's going to be a great community event. Bitcoin veterans dropped. Uh, follow the Bitcoin at Bitcoin veterans handle if you want to see the last podcast. I'm going to be at the pleb party. If you're a cafe Bitcoiner, you're attending Pacific Bitcoin. Let's meet up there. It's going to be a great time. Hope, hope you're going. Look forward to meeting you. And then finally, you've been listening to Cafe Bitcoin, the place for your morning news. Preferred hangout for some of the smartest minds in the industry. Also a podcast on Fountain, Spotify, and Apple. Thanks to Swan Bitcoin, the sponsor of the show, my crew, Ant, Peter, Sats for Life, Wicked, Dombe, and producer Jacob. Appreciate you guys deeply. I'm your host, Alex Danzik. I work with Swan. If you want to know more, shoot me a DM. Happy to help you. Thanks again to the speakers who come on here every day, teaching people about this bright orange future that we call Bitcoin. And that is what I call getting on the mission. By the way, it's not just for the speakers here. 
That's for everybody who hears my voice. If you're a Bitcoiner, you believe this thing is good for humanity. That's the mission. Get on it. Let's go. Love you guys. Everybody have a great day today. Get out there and crush it.